So in the last few weeks, we have walked through these practical examples. Sorry about that. But today, if you read ahead, which some of you probably did and some of you probably didn't, and that's okay, but if you read these verses or if you even listened to Adam read them just now, it may not go exactly the way that you think that it might. Uh, I will tell you from the beginning of preparing for this sermon, it didn't turn out the way that I thought it was going to turn out. It didn't go the exact direction. Overall, I think that it did. Uh, but I, I so much so it went a different way than I thought that I'm seriously even in this moment thinking maybe I should just preach a different sermon altogether. If you know me well enough, you'll know that that will not happen. What's on this page is what I'm going to speak. But just know that I wrestled through this this week as well. So just as an introduction, so you will kind of know what to expect, we will be talking first about what makes Christianity different, what makes the gospel different and distinct. We will see that the gospel is a distinct message from any other message in the world and that without that distinctness, a call to any of these behaviors and especially forgiving one another as Christ forgave us is foolish, impractical, and downright impossible. So we must cover that and then we will get to kind of where I thought the sermon would have ended up anyway. So as you read back over these verses, you may be thinking, how are we going to get there? So let's just discuss um, how the distinctness of the gospel forms our motivation, our means, and our methods of following Jesus, of carrying this out. So the first sentence I'm going to say may sound a bit uh, heretical, <laughs> but if you want a good, happy, peaceful life, any world religion will do. You can kind of follow the tenets of just about any world religion and get a good, happy, peaceful life. If you follow it correctly, and especially if the other, ones, other people around you are following it correctly, that includes all of the ones you can name. That includes humanism, which by its other name, atheism, where humans are just kind of their own gods, doing whatever they want, kind of forming their own morals. But all of these things will lead you or can lead you to a good, peaceful life. As a matter of fact, the quickest way outside of good, happy, and peaceful may be to become a Christian. That may be the quickest way not to have a good, peaceful, happy life. I could read you excerpts from the Quran right now that, would, that I would almost guarantee you some of you wouldn't be able to tell didn't come from the Bible. And I don't mean that because you don't know your Bible. I mean that because they sound exactly the same. Love your neighbor. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Do not lie. Do not carry out your anger in a way that is harmful to others. Do not steal. These in various forms can be found in basically every world religion that there is. It is basically, if you boil it all down, as long as it's not harming someone else, you can do it. But as soon as it does start harming others, that's when there's going to be rules placed in these other world religions and any world religion that you can name. But they are, there, they are all there. And why are we discussing this based on these verses? Because we see here in these three verses, the one thing or one of the things that is not found in any other world religion. And since truth matters, the truth of who God is probably matters most. If truth matters, 
Finding out who exactly God is might be the most important truth we can find because all of these religions outside of maybe atheism, which is a religion, don't get it twisted, is searching for this God or looking for God or looking for this higher power that is going to guide them into this life that they want. So we see here something that is not found in any other religion in the world. In verse 30, we see the Holy Spirit. In verse 32, we see God the Father and God the Son. No other religion has this form or really any form of the Trinity. No other religion believes that God is one but three, three but one. And yet, if you read through Scripture, you cannot get around the fact that one plus one plus one equals one somehow or another. We see that God the Father has a relationship and interacts with God the Son and God the Spirit. We see God the Son has a relationship and perfectly interacts with God the Father and God the Spirit. And we see God the Spirit has a relationship and perfectly interacts with God the Father and God the Son. Now there is no perfect analogy I can give you to this. You've probably heard a ton of them, the water and the egg and all, all of these things. And I'm not saying those are wrong, they are just vastly incomplete when you break them down. There is no analogy for this. There is no perfect analogy to describe the Trinity, how three can be one and one can be three and all of those things. There is no description that will illustrate this flawlessly. But one way that we can help understand this, C.S. Lewis had two really good friends in his life. He talks about them in, in some of his writings. One of them was J.R.R. Got to throw that extra R in there. J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings guy. Everybody knows who that is. The other one was named Charles Williams. They were very close. They even had a group name called the Inklings. I didn't have time or really care enough to look up why that is. But that's how close they were. They had a team name. I don't have that with any of my friends. So they were very close. But Lewis talked throughout his life about how he wanted to be selfish at sometimes, how he wanted sometimes to kind of hoard the relationship of one or the other and not really share it with the other. And here's the thing, we've all probably experienced that, where we have to share relationship with someone that we would really like to just, I want, I want to be his best friend, I want to be his only friend so that I'm the one he comes to and talks to. And C.S. Lewis went through this as well. So later in life, when Charles Williams died, Lewis recollects that while, of course, he was sad that his dear friend had passed, part of him found a silver lining that he thought to himself, but now I've got J.R.R. Tolkien, who he probably didn't call that, but I've got him all to myself. Now we can be best friends. We can share all of this. All of that that was shared with three can now be shared simply between two. But then he goes on to lament that it is, that's not what happened. It was as if part of Tolkien had died with Charles Williams. It was, he, it was almost as if he actually got less of his friend than more of it. And he, he is quoted as saying, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want others, other lights to show all of his facets. 
Again, I want to reiterate, this is an imperfect analogy, but it is an analogy that helps us understand the relationship between the Trinity. They carry out different functions. They carry out different roles. Things that the Son is called to do are not the things the Father is called to do. Not because he can't or is incapable. It is simply not his function. It is not his role. You can say that about all of them. The Father does things that the other two don't. The Spirit does things the other two don't. But they perfectly work together and they carry out all of the things that God carries out. It's not they're taking up the slack from the other ones. It's none of that. They just have a perfect relationship to where their interaction causes all of their facets to come come forth just like you see in the example C.S. Lewis gave. And in this, God shows us our need for relationship in the very way that he interacts with himself, in the very way that he interacts in the Trinity. This makes Christianity distinct. This makes our worldview much different. This makes our beliefs in God without complete understanding. You cannot fully understand the God of the Bible. And that sounds like, man, that's kind of a negative thing. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that that is a positive thing because a God who can be fully explained in every tenet is no God at all. Without some of this, what people call mystery, we don't really have a God. We just have a, a superhero or a guy that's just way better than we are. But we, can, we understand how he's better than we are. And I'm here to tell you it is a positive thing that we cannot fully understand this. And I believe it is a purposeful thing by God that he does it this way. C.S. Lewis, again, said this. says, we trust not because a God exists. We trust because this God exists. Let's say that again. We trust not because a God exists. We trust because this God God exists. This inexplicable, this incomparable, this different, this distinct God exists. This is the God we serve. This is the God we love. This is the God we worship and follow. And it is this God who makes us distinct in our practical living. It is this God that calls us to all of these things about our speech and about how we work and about how we talk to other people and how we forgive one another and all of these things. No other world religion has that. So let's look at the specifics here and how that distinctness, how that God drives us in our motivations, our methods, and our means. First, we have the means. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. We see clearly that our means for obedience and any of these things is, is generated from a desire from the Holy Spirit, not to grieve Him. This tells us two things. One, the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not just some force. It's not just some spiritual being that's kind of out here doing stuff. It is a person. He has feelings. He has emotions. He is grieved when sin besmirches his name and makes him look like someone he is not or sends an incorrect picture of who he is. This is a classic line from your parents that we all remember. I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed, right? We can all remember those moments, uh, just be mad instead and like hit me or something. Not that my, my dad didn't hit me. Okay, this, this kills us in the moment though. 
Oh, dad's disappointed. He's not mad. He's just disappointed in me. We want to avoid this at all costs. We want to obey God's laws so the Holy Spirit is not grieved by our actions because he is a person. Second thing it tells us is that we have a personal relationship with God because of the Holy Spirit. You cannot grieve someone you're not really in relationship with. Now, I can get mad at plenty of people that I don't know, i.e. Facebook or the news. I can get mad at all of that stuff, but I'm not disappointed in them. I'm not grieved. I may be grieved by the situation. I may be saddened, but that person has not offended me in a personal way. This is a personal relationship with God. He is grieved by our actions specifically because we have a relationship with him. And both of those facts make our faith, make the gospel, make Christianity distinct from any other world religions. See, the reason we obey or would obey if we were in any of these other religions is simply not to make God mad because he might do something to us. He might hurt us. He may take something from us that we don't want taken. It is simply a reward, fear-based kind of relationship that we have in these other religions. You want to appease their God, or they want to appease their God so he's not mad at them and will not smite them. But we not only have a relationship, but we have a God dwelling in us. We have a God that comes to live with us. He is not this far-off I just don't want to make that far off God mad. He's in control of everything, and I don't want him to do something that I don't like. No, no the God of Christianity comes to live with us, takes residence in our hearts, our minds, our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. It says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? It's not about tattoos, by the way. It's what I was brought up believing. Whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is saying here that because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, we carry out these practical things with our body. It should change our hearts and our minds to cause us to, with our hands and our feet, do things differently like we are seeing here at the end of Ephesians 4. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, kind of, this is just a reiteration of what we saw earlier in the book of Ephesians. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require, acquire possession of it. So in every other world religion, you have lots of commands to make God happy. You have lots of commands to do this or do that, carry this out, carry that out. Again, many of these commands that we have talked about over the past few weeks are found in many other, if not all other, religions. And yet, none of them have a God who is coming to live inside of you to help you carry those things out. They are just commands from this boss or this leader or this person, do this, don't do this, or else. And yet, there is no help from that person to carry those out. It's just command after command to carry it out. This is what makes the truth of the gospel different. When you come to believe that Jesus lived a perfect life that you were supposed to live and then subsequently died the death that your sin deserved, then that God is no longer distant. That God has now, once you come to that belief, 
is now living inside of you, filling you up, carrying out these commands. He draws you near even in your rebellion. He calls you friend. He calls you brother. These are relational terms. John 15, 15, it says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. In, earlier in the book of Ephesians 1, 5, it says, In love he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He draws us into relationship. He does not keep us at arm's reach hoping we can appease him by doing more good than bad. And in his death, he makes possible this intimate relationship. And then we now have the desire to carry out these commands. It becomes from within us, not from without us. But it's the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that empowers us, that strengthens us, that gives us these new desires, that gives us this new mind, that gives us this new heart. It is the Holy Spirit carrying us along to do them. But we do not do this so that in his non-grieved state he blesses us or he gives us our best life now or he expands our territory or any of these things. This is not so we get something from him. It is a relationship that we want to uphold on our end because he has upheld it on his end and that has become our desire to carry out our end of the bargain. See, the gospel turns all of religion on its head from a so that religion to a because of religion. It is not so that God will do something, but because God has done something, we carry out these commands or we strive to carry out these commands. It is the truth of the Holy Spirit living within us that makes 1 Corinthians, I do all things for the glory of God. It's only that the Holy Spirit lives within us that that's even possible. Because we won't carry that out on our own. So then how do we carry this out? What are our methods of practice? That's where you see this very practical list in verse 31. It says to put off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Now, as I've said before, we discussed in last week's, some of these are kind of covered roundaboutly, but we will talk about these a little bit. But here we see another list of things to do. And if you read those in a vacuum... It sounds like every other religion. You better do this or God will be mad. It's reminding ourselves of the first three chapters. It is our identity in Christ that drives us to do these things. It is the Holy Spirit living inside of us that drives us to do things. But this is how, practically speaking, we avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. See, we look through this list. We'll notice there are six things listed. But if you pay close attention, the first three are pretty much internal vices. The second three are the manifestations of those internal vices. So we see bitterness, wrath, and anger. These are all things that we can kind of harbor inside of ourselves. This bitterness we just hold so tightly to. And here's the, here's the craziest part that I've seen about bitterness in people's lives. Is it almost becomes comfortable. It's like it wraps them up like a warm blanket. They've just grown to to hate this person so much because they did something wrong 15 years ago, but it's just become the norm to continue hating them because that's what I do and I don't change. And even if the person has apologized profusely or even if they have tried to repent and make, make or reconcile and make it right, it just kind of, it, it feels comfortable. We can harbor it for so long. It just becomes part of us. 
When someone is a bitter person, you can just kind of almost see it from across the room. You can just see it written. It almost seeps out of their pores. And here's the thing. The dictionary would describe bitter in one way as a pungent smell or taste. And I think as much as that's not talking about the bitterness we're talking about here, it pretty much is because you can almost smell it or taste it in a person when they are just bitter all the time. And nothing's going to satisfy them. They're always going to find a complaint or a reason why this isn't good enough or especially when it's directed directly at that person. doesn't matter what good they do. Nah, it's just not good enough. I'm, they, they don't say, I'm bitter about it, but that's all we hear. We just hear them say, I'm bitter about it. And no one wants to be around those people. I'm just going to tell you now, if you feel like, and I'm not preaching to any one person in this room, so don't think I'm trying to, you know, I hope so-and-so hears this. But if you are one of these people, no one really wants to be around you. I'm just letting you know. So if you feel like you're bitter, then let's try to reconcile it. Let's try to deal with it. Wrath and anger go hand in hand. They usually follow bitterness around. Bitterness usually finally gets to a point where they're just mad at everything. It is, it is the spirit of bitterness that leads a person to become angry, especially at the person that has wronged them, but it seems to just be carried out on everyone, and then they're just mad at everybody. doesn't matter kind of what you do. You do one small thing wrong, and it's this huge explosion, and it's because the this bitterness, this bitter spirit is just kind of in them and it's just waiting to come out. So we see here that we are to put off these internal things along with the outward manifestations of them, clamor and slander. They're in a way kind of what we talked about last week. Clamor it basically is just really loud talking. It's really angry talking. It's yelling. It's, it's just loud noise. Um, but it's complaints, and slander is the same way. It's just trying to bring someone down. Talking bad about somebody, don't care if it's true or not, I just want to bring that person down. I'm going to slander them. We see this the most in politics. So if you want a, a kind of a picture of it, just imagine a debate. All that person is doing is trying to talk louder than this person, and all this person is doing is trying to talk louder than this person and make that person look bad and make that person look bad. That's a perfect example of what you see Slander is a little more personal because you're directing it at someone usually. Malice, on the other hand, is legitimately wishing something bad or even causing something bad to happen to someone. This is intentionally tripping someone up so they mess up or tricking them into something. This is the idea of a voodoo doll or placing a curse on someone. You want something bad to happen to them. And here's the thing is everybody here, well, I don't really believe in voodoo dolls. No, but you do believe thinking, Man, I wish, some, I wish that person would get what's coming to them. Or why is God blessing them when he knows what that person did to me? When are they going to get their just desserts? Whatever that means, right? But they don't deserve the good life. They don't deserve those blessings. I want something bad. I want someone to bring them down a peg. There's sayings for all of these things. It's just malice coming out. It's slander coming out. It's the internal vices of bitterness and anger coming out in outward ways and outward manifestations. Paul says we are to put off all of these things, but not just put them off, but put on to overlay them with kindness, with tenderheartedness, which is basically just empathy being empathetic towards people, understanding their plight, understanding that people aren't perfect, being understanding with them, and forgiveness. But how do we do that? 
Because again, it's so natural to just be mad and bitter when people wrong us, especially if it keeps happening. Especially when we think we're just one of those people that has bad luck, whatever that means, right? It's, man, if I, I just can't quite get a hold on this. How am I supposed to put off those things and put on these things? And we go back to verse 30, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way. We must rely on Him to carry these things out, to put off old self-thinking, old self-acting, old self-behaviors, and to put on new self-behaviors in order to reveal the true identity that is instilled within us. Romans 8, 7-11, it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. So you're asking, how do I put off these things and put on these things? You don't. You can't. Your natural self is not just going to wake up one day and be more forgiving. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which we've talked about just a moment ago, that that happens when you become a believer, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That would be very disheartening if the sentence ended there because you would go, oh, we got to earn it. We got to work out our salvation. We got to up the ante all the time. We got to always keep getting better. And verse 13, there's a comma, not a period. It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not, these are not verses to tell you to have better willpower or to be stronger in temptation. It is telling you to be weaker in yourself and lean harder, lean more on the Holy Spirit that you claim, if you are a Christian, dwells within you. So you can't say, well, the Spirit's not helping me here. He's always with you or you're not a believer. Those are the only two options. It's not he's with you sometimes, in and out. If you are a believer, he is always there. It is you refusing to lean on him and lean on yourself that causes these problems. But it is the Spirit of God dwelling in us that gives us the desire and the strength to carry out these and all of God's commands. And again, this is distinct to the gospel. The God of the universe in his perfection, in every religion, including ours, in his perfection has certain and specific requirements to his law and his righteousness. But only in the gospel do we see a God who requires it of us, but then also empowers us to carry it out. And then furthermore, and we'll get to this in a moment, pays for it when we don't. So he carries out all three. He gives us the commands. Then he gives us the strength to follow his commands. Oops, we didn't. Don't worry, I got you. I'll pay for that myself. The law that requires punishment, I will pay the punishment for you. Nowhere, no 
where in any other religion, in any part of the world, are you going to find that? You do not see the spirit of any of the gods of any other world religion coming to live inside of a person or even really live beside a person. They're always far off and definitely nowhere are you going to find that God paying the price for when you messed up his commands. That is only found in the gospel. So then we look at this last thing that we are called to do in these verses, and this is obviously the hardest one. This is where I thought we would spend literally our entire time when I started prepping for this sermon. But it tells us here that we are to forgive others. But if you notice, there's a small little caveat there at the end. It doesn't just say, forgive others. As God in Christ forgave you. And this is where we see the very motivation by which we even attempt to carry out this forgiveness in our lives. Tim Keller says this. says, on both a theological and a practical level, forgiveness is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. True forgiveness comes at a cost, and it is pursued intentionally within a community of believers see if we are forgiven if we are adopted if we are justified if we are sealed if we are saved which is all of the language Ephesians uses if we are saved by a distinct gospel then we must live as a distinct community in the world we must carry these things out in a distinct manner that will look far different than any other religion in the world any other worldview of the world any other people of the world we must live a distinct gospel. This means doing things differently than the world does them in a, in a supernatural way because our natural way is to want revenge or to want the guilty parties to pay. It is supernatural to want to forgive as Christ forgave us. It's not easy. It's not natural. It's really not even practical if you think about it because forgiving someone and letting them slide hurts. And we have to pay that price. The Bible in general, and Jesus specifically, equates forgiveness many times with canceling a financial debt. But this is, can obviously be overlaid into any kind of debt, right? A spiritual one, an emotional one, a mental one. It is canceling the debt. In essence, it is not requiring payment, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, whatever. It is not requiring payment from the one who offended you. It is not requiring payment of the one who is guilty, the one that rightfully owes the debt. If I go to the bank and I say I want a loan and I sign all the paperwork, I am the one on the hook for that. And when someone hurts you, in a natural sense, in a practical sense, in a worldly sense, and even really in a biblical sense, they are on the hook for that. They did it. God is not a God that's just, well, don't worry about it. And yet, we are called here to forgive as Christ forgave us. This means we forgive others that we are absorbing that hurt because we have been wronged or we have been hurt, or someone has done something that they owe a debt to, we are absorbing that cost. The pain that is felt becomes ours. We have to be willing to take it. We have to be willing to feel it and not try to get the other person to pay also. 
It is absorbing their debt. This means we are giving up the right to ever, if we offer forgiveness, we never seek repayment from the one that has harmed us. Or it's not true forgiveness. That's just holding it out there for later. Right? That's just, oh, I'll get them. Just, I'm just waiting. You see this in movies. There's like a 15-year plan. Who does that? Nobody. Right? But we hold, sometimes we do, in a spiritual or mental sense, we hold on to something. Oh, it's always here. I'll forgive, but I ain't going to forget. That's what we say. There is no double jeopardy in forgiveness. You offer it. You give it. As Christ gave it to us, there is no, I'll get it later. There is no, I changed my mind, take, take backs. It's permanent. Forgiveness by definition means there is going to be suffering, though. There is, if there's no suffering, then it's not forgiveness. If there is no suffering, there is no forgiveness, though. It is just that in the case of forgiveness, the way the Bible is talking about it, the forgiver is the one suffering instead of the one that has offended. Forgiveness is, I really want you all to get this, a choice. It is a decision. It's not a feeling. You're not going to wake up one day, you know, I just feel more forgiving towards that person that has wronged me. Today's the day. I'm just going to forgive them. It is a choice. In forgiving someone, you are choosing you are making the conscious decision to suffer because someone has to. Someone has to pay for the wrong because there's pain and there's suffering in there. And you are making the decision that that person's not going to pay. I'm absorbing it. I'm going to pay. I'm going to take that suffering. You are signing up for it. I was talking to one of our residents recently. And he has been away from home for a while um, through various ways, programs, jail, things like that. But he's not been home. He has recently found out for sure, he's had suspicions that his wife has been less than faithful. He is clearly hurt by this. He's clearly torn up by this. He comes into my office and he'll, he'll cry about it. But he keeps saying, like, I don't, I don't want to leave her over it. I just want her to stop. I love her, I want to I pursue this relationship. And I don't know that that's from a Christian aspect in his mind yet. I do think God is drawing him, won't go into that. But I, I told him when I said, you have to make the decision today, if you're going to try to pursue the reconciliation of that marriage, whether you are willing to forgive her or not. And he immediately, oh, I, I've, I've already forgiven her. Which... I, I, I can't tell him that's not true. But I told him, before you agree to that, I just want you to know what you're signing up for here. See, what you are si saying is you're no longer seeking repayment for her sins, her wrongs. She no longer has to make that up to you, even though, in fact, she is wrong. Because he keeps saying, well, I mean, I understand. I've been away from home. She's lonely. No, 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 no. Let's not lessen the wrong she's done. It's wrong. It's sinful. She should not in any way, shape, or form be doing this. You're, it's even okay that you're mad right now about it. But this is what it's, you're signing up for when you say, I'm going to forgive her and I'm going to strive to do this. It means that 
even though he, there's no way he can physically forget that she has done this, that you live, practically speaking, as if you don't remember that she has done this. You don't bring it back up later. You don't place it in the filing cabinet that we all have, men and women, and pull it out 10 years from now. Well, at least I didn't do this. When they point something wrong out and you feel really attacked, well, at least I didn't cheat on you. Or at least I didn't do this. You are absorbing the pain that she has caused you. You are taking that upon yourself. You are saying, I will pay that, and you don't have to. And this is the same for all of us. This is what it means to forgive. It has to be treated as if it never happened. That doesn't mean that reconciliation doesn't take time. But once you have reached the point of, I forgive you, it doesn't come up again. It doesn't get thrown in that person's face again. You don't even start sentences with, remember that time you and talk about the sin that that person has, has, infilt- or, uh, has done in your life. It is as if it didn't happen because you are no longer seeking payment for the wrongdoing. You're no longer seeking them to earn your forgiveness. This is extremely unnatural. Most people in the world, we just want justice. We see things on the news, man, I hope that person gets, what gets justice, whatever that is. And we all have different variations of what justice means, but we all want justice. We all want what's right. We want guilty parties to pay. If we know someone is guilty of some heinous crime, we want them to pay. I'm not saying the legal system should let them off. That's not where this forgiveness lies. But in in our hearts, our natural tendency is just we want someone to pay when they owe something. But in forgiving one another, as it calls us to do here and in Colossians 3, this is what it is calling us to do. It is a supernatural thing being commanded here. Therefore, we can't carry it out. We must rely on the Spirit that we are talking, uh, talked about earlier living within us. He must carry this out. But again, that caveat at the end is, ex- is so important. It is not just an arbitrary type of forgiveness. We are to forgive as God forgave us in Christ. Christ was not owed any punishment. We were the offenders. We were the wrongdoers. We were the sinners. God could have justly and righteously meted out his righteous wrath upon guilty sinners, and I mean every last one of them, never impeached his perfection, never changed his righteousness. If no one makes it to heaven, God is still God. If not one soul is forgiven because he doesn't have to do that. He set up a system for it to happen and now he has to uphold his promises. But if he had just said from the beginning, you sin and you're out, that doesn't make him less righteous because we're getting what we deserve. We are getting that justice we long for all the time. We just don't want it to be pointed at us. He would have been completely right in banishing everyone to hell because that is what we have earned. But... In an act of incomparable grace and mercy, in an act of distinct grace and mercy, God himself in the form of his son Jesus not only absorbs the pain that we are owed by not making us pay our own debts, 
but pays the very debt to himself. This is the bank telling you you don't have to pay your mortgage because we're going to pay it back to ourselves. God himself not only doesn't require the punishment to be poured out on you, takes it himself, upon himself, so that he can remain righteous and just and remain merciful. You see, this is where the gospel once again is distinct. In all other religions, God can forgive. I say that with quotations. In all other religions, you have this idea of you've done wrong. All other religions will say, yeah, we've sinned or we've done wrong or whatever that is. But God will, if we have enough good over here instead of bad or, or some version of that story, God will forgive me. But at what cost? At what cost do those religions, does the God of those religions forgive people? Because in other, other religions, it seems he is simply letting it go. He's not suffering for it. You're not suffering for it. You get the reward, even though you deserve the punishment. But who's paying the debt? Who's paying the price? God will not and cannot and never will pardon the guilty. He can't. It says in Proverbs 17, 15, that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. I can tell you without, with 100% confidence, God is not going to become an abomination to himself. He is not going to pardon the guilty or justify the wicked. So in order to not be an abomination to himself, in a distinct and unparalleled way, paid our debt and instead of pardoning the guilty, makes us the righteous. So then he would be an abomination to himself if he condemns us. This is wholly distinct. There is no other world religion that points to this, that points to he is making you righteous. He is making you not guilty in his own eyes, in his own justice. He is not making you pay the price, but someone is paying it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that in him, he became sin, so he's paying the price, and in him, we become the righteousness of God. This is how he remains just, and this is how he remains merciful, because every sin that has ever happened is punished. Every one of them in the history of time. It is punished in Jesus, or it is punished in the offender in hell. That is the only two options. But there is suffering in both of those options because without suffering, there is no forgiveness. And when we realize that, and when we realize that even, let's say some crazy hypotheticals, that we were the only sinner that ever lived. One person. My sin. Only my sin. Everybody else is perfect. They're carrying out this. My sin alone Jesus would have had to endure the exact same cross because that is God's justice being poured out on sin. When we realize that only our sin would have caused Jesus to have to die the very same death, it should make us eager to forgive others, eager to point people to that Jesus, eager to forgive them. Do you, there is none, no punishment for you if you're in a believer here. This doesn't mean you won't get disciplined. This doesn't mean things won't happen in your life. This is not me saying become a Christian and life will be good. That's not what I'm saying. But there is no punishment for your sin if you are in Christ. None. Zero. It is finished. It was poured out. If you get that, it should make you want 
to go forgive people that have wronged you. It should make you desire because you realize, oh, my sin was this bad. They just did this little thing and didn't apologize for it. I want to pour this through me out to them. So we forgive just as God forgave. And I want to be as blunt as possible. If you're in this room and you are unwilling to forgive someone, you've thought about it, I don't want to, I'm not going to be forgiving in this situation, I don't care what they do, then you need to check your heart and make sure that you have experienced the forgiveness that God is offering or that God gives you. Because if you are unwilling to forgive, I'm not saying it won't be hard. I'm not saying you're not going to feel it because you might not feel it. But if you refuse to make the decision to choose to absorb the pain, absorb the suffering, and forgive someone, you may or may not have experienced the forgiveness of God because that is clearly the reason we do it. We forgive as Christ forgave us. One of my favorite quotes from Tim Keller sums up the distinctness of this so perfectly. I've used it here probably five times. But it says that only in the gospel is the verdict given before the performance. So because God has already forgiven us, now we in real time carry out that forgiveness to others who have wronged us, no matter what it is that they have done. It tells us here that the Holy Spirit has already sealed, that's past tense, sealed us for the day of redemption. We are simply waiting for that day, knowing that, seeing that, believing that, savoring that daily, savoring the cross. This is how we forgive others with the very forgiveness that was poured out to us on Calvary. We carry that with us. We forgive in this way. God seeks us even while we were still enemies. We weren't begging for God to forgive us. He sought us. He pursued us. He chased us down in our rebellion. Jared Wilson says it this way. In every other religion, people seek God. Only in Christianity does God seek people. This is distinct. This is different. God doesn't chase people down in other religions. You have to find your way to him. You have to work your way to him. You have to earn your way to him. You chase him down because he's God. And that sounds right because he's God. We should have to chase him down. And yet, because the gospel is distinct, the gospel is different, because this God we serve is different. God seeks us. He pursues us. He pursues reconciliation, which should be our goal when we forgive others, is reconciliation. But he reconciles us just Christ reconciles us back into a right relationship with God. And God forgives totally and finally. There is no sin too big for God's grace. It is total. There is no sin too many for God's grace. There is no coming back and seeking punishment once God's grace has been extended. There's no whoopsies, I changed my mind. Or whoopsies, I forgot about that one and that one's really bad. I can't quite cover that one. God covers totally. It is total. It is final. So in conclusion, in summary, this is why we forgive. This is how we forgive. This is how we are able to offer forgiveness. The Spirit indwells us. Once he does that, he then causes us to desire obedience. Once he does that, he then empowers us to obey, even in forgiving others, when they have wronged us. And when we have to forgive, and we don't want to, and we want to hold on to that bitterness, 
And we want to hold on to that anger. And we want that person to pay. Every natural part of us wants that person to pay. He reminds us of the truth of this distinct gospel that you don't have to pay. You are owed punishment and you're not paying it. So you can allow that person to not have to pay theirs. Doesn't ask us to forgive because we're so strong. It doesn't ask us to forgive because we're such good people or because that we just are forgiving in our spirit. It tells us here to contemplate, to concentrate on the way in which God forgave us at the cross of Jesus and then to extend that out into our practical lives to forgive others. This is what we must do. If you were looking for practical advice today of how can I let this go, this wrong go, I don't have it other than this. Constantly contemplate the cross. Constantly draw your attention back to Jesus on the cross. Paying your punishment. See him. Savor him. Savor the thought of Jesus and his forgiveness he purchased there. The redemption. The buying back of the people he already owned. Absorbing the penalty for their sins. Absorbing the pain that their sins had caused him. This is how we forgive. We view the distinct, incomparable, unparalleled gospel. We view a God who seeks us, pursues us, builds a relationship with us, requires obedience from us, empowers the very obedience that his justice requires, and then after all of that, pays the debt to himself that we owed for every last time we missed the mark. It is seeing and savoring this God that enables us to forgive over and over and 70 times 7 over again. It is seeing and savoring this God because God has forgiven us in Christ. To modify C.S. Lewis's quote from earlier, we forgive not because a God exists. We forgive because this God exists. Pray with me.